Reading Mission, a live book club podcast where we read some of our favourite books about mission, justice and social change together. My name is Emily and with me is Mitch. Hello. Before we get started, let's pause to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia and pay respects to elders past and present. We recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. So Emily, what are we reading tonight? Tonight, we are diving into our second uh, section of When Helping Hurts. So tonight we're reading, or we have read, and we're going to be discussing chapters two and three, where, we, uh, where we're going to dig deeper into some of the foundational challenges of poverty alleviation. We will be addressing the biblical framework of why poverty exists and some more personal reflective stuff about that comes with being engaged with poverty alleviation, such as examining the personal positionality and involvement within the system. But before we get started, Mitch, what's been your bright spot this week? Oh, Tiny Tina's Wonderlands. What's that? <laughs> so there's been a new game released, new video game released in the uh, spin-off from the Borderlands franchise, which is one of my absolute favourite all-time um, games. Like, I, it's it's it feels like it should be a guilty pleasure game because it's very, you know, big, loud, bombastic, silly, uh, bit... Crude's not the right word, but kind of like wants you to think it's crude. Um, but they've just released a new spin-off game that's uh, Dungeons and Dragons themed. Um, and it's it's just like, it, they just made it specifically for me. It's just the most wonderful thing. So is it D&D like as in branded and everything as well no, so is it like a no, crossover so, so it's just like a, a role play so it's game a it's a, it's a video game that is um about dungeon about role playing games and about um really like it's a uh i'm i'm about 3 quarters of the way through the story and it's kind of this really quite somber meditation on the the impact and importance of role-playing games on people's lives and connectedness but also you spend the entire time running around with ridiculous guns and blowing stuff up so it's great there you go (laughs) i must say one of the first room one of the first conversations we had i remember you saying I think Dungeons and Dragons has a lot to teach us about DMing. So dungeon mastering yep. in Dungeons yep. and Dragons has a lot to teach you teach us about leadership. Hundred percent. And if you're a good leader, you can be a good DM, and vice, and vice versa. versa. A good DM is probably a good leader. Yeah. And the more you, well, more I thought about it, I was like, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, with the few games of Dungeons and Dragons I've played, um, but that's that's yes. my book that I'm going to write one day. That's, yeah. that's the, yeah. And you can buy it yourself, self-published. <laughs> <laughs> All of the three copies you'll buy yourself. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Moving right <laughs> along, Emily, what's your bright spot other than ripping my heart out through my rib cage? <laughs> oh, that was brutal. But I'm not even really sorry. Um <laughs> Look, that moment, just reveling in, that is quite a bit of a bright spot because um, it was a sick burn. Sick burn. Um, Boom. Roasted. <laughs> but I think um, my actual bright spot um, is that I get to hang out with my sister this weekend. She's coming nice. down and visiting me in Sydney and we're going to do some fun stuff with some friends. And Great. Yeah, that's going to be really nice. How many musicals do you have tickets for already? 
Oh, for this year? For for the time that your sister's uh, down. Oh, oh no, not at no? all. We're not oh. going to see any shows. Tragic. No. But when I go up to my parents' house in July, we're going to go see Priscilla Queen in the Desert. At, right. On the Gold Coast. Right. Yeah. And then I'm going to see my a musical my friend a musical review my friends in on Saturday night community theater. Yeah. And then I've also got tickets for Phantom of the Opera in August. So I've got some things lined up. Oh, that's Phantom of the Opera at the Opera weekend. House, isn't it? Yes, yes, at Sydney Opera House. That so amazing. it's going to be quite the experience. That sounds. So, um, Mitch. Yes. My our first question tonight is: What is poverty? Mm. Which is. Such a big question and, like, similar to the the kind of stuff that we talked about last week, like how you define, how you answer this question then goes on to sort of influence how you then respond to it because what you think poverty is and what you think the causes are are always going to dictate what your responses are. Um, so it's a really important question. Not so much... Well, you know, it is, it is an important question to get right, but I think it's an important question to, more important to examine and see how your answer kind of then informs your activity, you know? Um, mm. So look, for, for me, I... The, so the, without beating around the bush and being a politician about it, how oh, would you answer the question? Oh, I'm just going to go all Lee Sales You're in a you. mood today. Um, you are, you are <laughs> Am being, I? You are being brutal. the obvious thing that comes up the obvious thing that comes to mind when you say what is poverty it's not having enough money um you know like that's that's what and and because of not having enough money not having enough food or not having enough you know uh not having good housing or um you know or experiencing stress in area you know food insecurity housing insecurity um if you are experiencing poverty, you know, it might be um, stuck in cycles of, you know, you're, you're dependent on Centrelink or something like that or, you know, um, may not have access to job opportunities and things like that, may not have had access to education, um, you know, all of these these things. But, like... I I have read a bunch of of books and spent a bunch of time with thinkers and um, you know even when we were reading uh, Make Poverty Personal in our last series of reading mission something that kept coming up is you know this this sense poverty is this experience of powerlessness or this uh, this inability to influence. What about for you, Emily, when I say what is uh, poverty? <laughs> what comes to mind for you? Completely derailed your response. I apologize. <laughs> um, it's interesting because I think it's definitely in the time from when I first read this book to now, I mm. think it's definitely shifted. Mm. Um, so when I first read this book, I, I wrote some notes in the front of this chapter because there's got some initial thoughts, so I, I wrote some thoughts down. Yeah. And um, so this is, like, from probably pretty much three years ago. Um, and I wrote, it's um, poverty is a lack of provisions, physical, spiritual, economic, etc. because I, I think I was thinking in terms of the definition of health being it's a holistic approach and mm. it's not just physical or mental or emotional or spiritual, it's all combined. Um, and then it's the absence of something that allows people to live in a dignified way. Mm. And then 
physical equals a lack of availability to fundamental human rights. Yeah. So looking at, and I think I was probably studying, oh, no, I'd already done my human rights unit by the time I read this, but <laughs> um, a lot of that is very informed by my degree and what I was studying. So it's very theoretical and very, like, um, social science based and I was like oh my goodness that's incredible um because I think as well I was I struggle to define it as a concept because it's so many things yeah absolutely Um, and I think you know through reading and just experiencing different things and um engaging with different media I guess as well Mm. poverty is more than just a lack of physical needs while it's that there's layers. So Mm. there's your sort of physical needs. So it's sort of a bit of like a Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Like you need these fundamental things and you kind of like move up the stages to self-actualization. But once again, that's a pretty flawed view of social constructs because it sort of is saying, if you don't have one thing, you can't have another. And it all sort of plays Mm. into each other, but Mm. that's really good old Maslow's. Hmm. is the question and i think i would um answer it in a way that is somewhat similar but i think um is more about not only the physical not only the material but also including maybe more of a spiritual emotional social element to it um and being, I guess, trapped in a system that oppresses, mm. that doesn't, or that um, provides challenges for social mobility. Um, yeah, yeah. But but even then, that doesn't even really. <laughs> that's 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 like one aspect of it, but it doesn't really encapsulate everything either. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I guess it's a lack of wholeness and a lack of. Um, yeah, a lack of wholeness within mm. a person. Mm. Yeah. 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 I reckon that word that you used in your definitions, dignity, is a really um, is of, is a key phrase for understanding. So this uh, chapter two of Make Poverty. No, what are we reading? Chapter two of When Helping Hurts, even, um, opens with. Uh, Quotes from a research project um, conducted uh, at the end or after World War II in kind of the the post-war reconstruction uh, period. There was a lot of effort put into uh, lifting people out of poverty. Um, or just but, building countries. Yeah. Um, po- um, sorry, not political. Economic. Or a lot of economic reform yeah. at a global level. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And um, so some research, so, so, but poverty didn't disappear. And so some research was done into, um, you know, exploring what is that, what actually is poverty? What are we actually trying to d- deal with? And so we, we opened this chapter with a bunch of quotes, um, which um, I won't read all of. But one of the the key things that comes up, you know, these these people expressing in their own words um, what poverty is for them. I'll I'll read read a couple. Um, so this is a quote from a person in Moldova. For a poor person, everything is terrible. 
illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We're like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Um, someone in Latvia um, answered, During the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. Um, and someone in Uganda answered, uh, when one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. She has no food. So there is a famine in her house, no clothing and no progress in her family. And yeah, so the, the thing that stands out for me in all of that is this, um, this sense of this lack of dignity, this lack of, you know, were, were you raised, Emily, to, to always offer to bring something when you're invited around to dinner? Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. I, my, my personal growth project at the moment is um, if I offer to bring something to dinner and the host says, no, no, it's fine. My personal growth project is going, okay, I'm not going to bring anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty good if people say, oh, no, it's all right, we got it covered. Yeah. But then I'll often be there and, like, like what can I, like, clear the table? What can I do? do different yeah. things like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Oh, because that's just culturally how I was raised. Yeah. And yeah. it's polite. Well, in our culture, it's polite mm. and manners. Yeah. But that would be the case in everywhere. Yeah. I know. It's also, it's this opportunity to give back to the host as well and to con yeah. contribute into the, the space. So it's not just a, yeah. a one way, um, you know, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to eat all your food and I'm going to scuff up your carpets and then I'm going to leave. Um, you know, no, this is a, this is a space that we are in together. We are curating an experience of connection and community together. But yeah, that that lack of of being able to contribute as as is expected is mm. you know it it doesn't it doesn't feel great. You don't feel like you mm. are you you are, yeah again that word dignity. You don't have dignity in that situation if you can't contribute to uh, as as is expected of you. Mm. Um, and mm. so we'll. we'll We'll jump forward a little bit because there's a there's a little diagram on uh, page fifty four that I'll just um I'll chuck yeah in you'll chuck in the chat and I'll start chat. yeah I'll uh, chat about so this is a, a diagram and it's sort of it's a circle um a large oval circle and then there's an arrow pointing up to another small oval that's got God in it and then this larger oval has things in sort of a a border on the outside of economic systems, social systems, religious systems, and political systems. And then on the inside, you've got um, an individual and there's arrows pointing to and away from this individual. And it's pointing towards things of um, God, self, others, and the rest of creation. But then it's also showing with these thinner, slighter arrows um, pointing into the individual and away from the individual that the systems that surround us in society 
um, also influence how we live um, and that we've got this connection to God and because of that we've got a connection to the self, to others and the rest of creation because yeah. that's sort of, if you're looking back to Genesis 1, um, that's what we're created for, for relationship with God, for relationship with others, rest of creation and then the relationship, I guess, within the self and what you value and how you live and the worth and self-worth and different things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This this fourfold relationship of this relationship up to God, relationship side to side to other people, relationship down to the earth and relationship within yourself um, is is really uh, – I've, I've always found it to be a really rich um, – so description and it really really does capture sort of our our interconnectedness is part of what makes us human and it is as mm. you, as you said Emily like in in the beginning um god created people into relationship and those those four relationships were present um so i've used this this diagram of these this fourfold relationship um a bunch cuz I found it valuable and it does, it articulates something very quickly and um, efficiently. But the, this is the first time I've ever seen this, this outer circle added, this, this circle mm. of systems, economic system, social system, religious system, and political system. And when I, when I flicked to that, uh, when I was first reading through this chapter, I immediately got out my highlighter and just sort of drew around that's that circle with my highlight. I think it's the first time. <laughs> yeah, I've you said to me this is the first time I've ever highlighted a a picture in a book. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that was I like think amazing. As, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, ah, oh, that has been missing from this diagram that I've been using for like the last 10 years. Um, mm. all of these relationships, these relationships up with God, these relationships side to side with people, this relationship to ourselves, our relationship down to the earth, this, these all exist within these systems that uh, encompass and uh, shape and the, we are also in relationship to these systems and these systems mediate mm. every other relationship. Um, I think that is that is a really brilliant articulation because both of those those things are true. Um, those those relationships exist independently, and yes, those systems are constantly happening. Um, so now I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs um, from page fifty six of When Helping Hurts. As figure 2.1 illustrates, the arrows connecting the individual to the systems point both ways. People affect systems, and systems affect people. For example, much of our lives are spent working in organizations that play a huge role in shaping our self-images, our relationships to co-workers, the means by which we steward creation, and the setting in which we respond to God and which he responds to us. And these organizations operate in the context of local, national and global systems characterized by rapid flows of information, capital and technology, which greatly impact the scope and nature of their operations. More than ever, the organizations in which we work are shaped by events on the other side of the world. For example, China's economic policies emerge, the entire global economy is affected. Hence, the context in which we relate to God, self, others and the rest of creation is influenced by the actions of the Chinese government. What are your thoughts, Emily? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
Absolutely. Mm. Um, and even maybe more poignantly now than 12 years ago, mm. um, <laughs> when this was written 10 years ago. Um, but I think I really, I like the dichotomy in this illustration of, you know, that people affect the system, but the system also affects people. Mm. Um, and there's like this duality there in the relationship and it really hits this sweet spot of a huge wrestle between as to what our role in poverty alleviation is and what that looks like. Um, mm. Because it's easy to throw the baby out with a bathwater and say, oh, three hands up in the air go, we, we're within the system, it's the system's fault, we can't do anything about it. Um, but then also you kind of get the other side where it's like we've got to do all the stuff, but without the system working to also end poverty, mm. poverty is not going to end, mm. but also just through individuals just doing stuff, it's not going to necessarily change the system. So it's looking at, mm. well, what are the systemic changes that we need as well as what are the individual changes that yeah. we're putting in yeah. place. And and systems and only change. Tension and wrestle. Yeah, and systems only change through the actions and the transformations of people, because systems Absolutely. don't ind- don't exist independent from people. Uh, they are Absolutely. they are the product of people. Um, yeah, if you don't acknowledge you're part of a system and part of the problem, then there's nothing will change because you're not acknowledging the part you have to play in that too. And I think that then begins potentially a deconstruction process mm. process and examining your own positionality and your own place in society, yeah. which is a fun process and doesn't <laughs> hurt at all. That's dripping with sarcasm in case you're wondering. Oh, I think that was pretty clear. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, good. So one of the things that we're going to keep, or two of the things that we're going to keep talking about this whole night through these two chapters is one uh, relationship is everything that we're talking about when it comes to mission it all Mm. gets down to relationship Um, and two is that tension between uh, individual transformation and systems transformation Um, and not, uh, not throwing one out for the other but recognising that both are essential um, and both are within the scope of what Jesus is interested in. Let's see uh, what Steve and Brian have to say kind of about that same thing. So I'm going to start on page 61. I'm going to read a bit and then I'm going to jump ahead um, to page 64. Quote, One of the major premises of this book is that until we embrace our mutual brokenness, our work with low-income people is likely to do far more harm than good. As discussed earlier, research from around the world has found that shame, a poverty of being, is a major part of the brokenness that low-income people experience in their relationship with themselves. Instead of seeing themselves as being created in the image of God, low-income people often feel they are inferior to others. This can paralyze the poor from taking initiative and from seizing opportunities to improve their situation, thereby locking them into material poverty. At the same time, the economically rich, including most of the readers of this book and listeners to this podcast, also suffer from a poverty of being. In particular, development practitioner Jayakuma Christian argues that the economically rich 
often have God complexes, a subtle and unconscious sense of superiority in which they believe that they have achieved their wealth through their own efforts and that they have been anointed to decide what is best for low-income people, whom they view as inferior to themselves. Few of us are conscious of having a God complex, which is part of the problem. We're often deceived by Satan and our sinful natures. For example, consider this. Why do you want to help the poor? Really think about it. What truly motivates you? Do you really love poor people and want to serve them? Or do you have other motives? I confess to you that part of what motivates me to help the poor is my felt need to accomplish something worthwhile with my life, to be a person of significance, to feel like I have pursued a noble cause, to be a bit like God. It makes me feel good to use my training in economics to save poor people. And in the process, I sometimes unintentionally reduce poor people to objects that I use to fulfill my own need to accomplish something. It's a very ugly truth, and it pains me to admit it, but, quote, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me, Romans 7.21. And now we've come to a very central point. One of the biggest problems in many poverty alleviation efforts is that their design and implementation exacerbates the poverty of being of the economically rich, their God complexes, and the poverty of being of the economically poor, their feelings of inferiority and shame. The way that we act towards the economically poor often communicates, albeit unintentionally, that we are superior and they are inferior. In the process, we hurt the poor and ourselves. And here is the clincher. This dynamic is likely to be particularly strong whenever middle to upper class North American or Australian Christians try to help the poor, given these Christians' tendency towards a Western materialistic perspective of the nature of poverty, end quote. And now I'm going to jump ahead to page 64. Quote, our efforts to help the poor can hurt both them and ourselves. In fact, as the story that we've just skipped over illustrates, very often the North American church finds itself locked into the following equation. A material definition of poverty plus God complexes of materially non-poor plus feelings of inferiority of the materially poor equals harm to both materially poor and non-poor. What can be done to break out of this equation? Changing the first term in this equation requires a revised understanding of the nature of poverty. North American, and again Australian, Christians need to overcome the materialism of Western culture and see poverty in more relational terms. Changing the second term in this equation requires ongoing repentance. It requires North American and Australian Christians to understand our brokenness and to embrace the message of the cross in deep and profound ways, saying to ourselves every day, I'm not okay, and you're not okay, but Jesus can fix us both. And as we do this, God can use us to change the third term in this equation, By showing low-income people through our words, our actions, and most importantly, our ears, that they are people with unique gifts and abilities, we can be part of helping them recover their sense of dignity, even as we recover from our sense of pride. End quote. Yeah. Whole bunch in there. That's (laughs) so much in there. And I think for me, it just, it really just drives home um, that how vital mutual relationship is for mission um like 
yeah, as 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 Steve and Brian are constantly describing, and I think I suspect they're going to go on to describe when we you know we go into a a, a mission, um, a, an opportunity to change the world in some way, um, from a from an attitude of I am going to give 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 and never allow myself to be to receive or to be influenced or to be changed that's uh it just leads to it just leads to harm um it it might address some short-term uh needs uh it might have some positive outcomes um but yeah it's just it's not going to be able to hit the nail on the head of that that fundamental thing that has happened that that fracturing of those four relationships um and yeah the, and subsequently the the systems around those relationships that are formed because of those relationships you know um, what are your thoughts emily yeah so um actually i'd underlined it and re-highlighted it this on this <laughs> reading but one of the things that really stood out it's like why do you want to help the poor really think about it what are your true motives um, and that bit, I think it, it really, it's one thing we spoke about at uni and it's the, this tension between the humanitarian heart and the humanitarian mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like the humanitarian heart, we would talk about being kind of like the bleeding heart for, um, you know, let's go and change the world. Let's go and save the world. Let's go save people from their poverty. Let's, yeah. you know, do that. Yeah. And, um, I remember this coming up in one of our classes and, you know, a bunch of us had sort of been on various different types of short-term mission trips um, through Christian organisations and not Christian organisations, but, you know, going and doing a thing, but then come, but like, for example, I remember when I was in East Timor, um, actually, I'm going to go back further than that. I remember probably being 12 or 13 and wanting to do 40-hour famine for the first time because watch the video of mm. the, we all know the videos, <laughs> the um, poor hungry child who's like, thank you so much for saving us and you've done such a great job and you could help us and you can do that. And just like I think my heart breaking for those situations and going I want to do something about that. Mm. Um, but then I remember sitting in our minibuses we're driving around from like the capital back to where we were staying, from Dili to um, Hera where we were staying and just seeing like these sort of uh, quite like tin shacks and not great accommodate, like not great sh- um, housing and, you know, poor sanitation and different things and just piles of rubbish on the side of the road because not great waste disposal, different things like that. And just thinking oh, I think I went in with an expectation that I was going to feel that thing again, going, oh, look at these poor people, look at this. But then I was there on the bus going, well, because I was a year and a half into my degree by this point. So by that point I was like, well, there's actually nothing I can do in two weeks to change this situation. Mm. And then having to then come to the wrestle of, oh, like what? Then I think it was then wrestling through that of, I think, deconstructing a lot of, why and and um deconstructing and deepening my understanding of why I've got a heart for this and it's not just the heart which still exists and 
I'm passionate about, but it's more than that. And it's going, okay, well then what is a real systemic change in these things? And it's mm. not about going and doing and the dependency and mm. that kind of stuff, but the mutuality and what is it that we gain from each other through these experiences. And I think Deacon's decolonizing a lot of mm. through that experience um, and understanding of mission. Mm. Um, yeah, so that really hits home still and then because I think it's a good check-in of going, okay, well, why are you doing this thing? Mm. What is it really? Is it because it's going to make you feel good or is yeah. it? And then being really brutally honest with that as well and going, yeah, I did it because I thought it might make me feel good. Mm. But then being willing to deconstruct that and reconstruct something, hopefully, that is deeper and more nuanced and has a better understanding and appreciation of the gospel of Jesus and his character and also um, just the world as a whole and mm. just different experience as well. So this next chapter is Are We There Yet? in terms of poverty alleviation. So what what do you reckon, Mitch? Are we there yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yes. Does poverty exist? Yes. Are we there yet? Yeah. No. <laughs> but are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Emily, I will turn this podcast around. Um, on to more serious um, things and uh, more deep conversation. Um, going to read from the start of Chapter 3. Um, so this is how should we how how should we then alleviate? So this is from um, chapter three and it's on page seventy three, about halfway down. Jesus' work focuses on reconciliation, which means putting things back into right relationship again. The church must pursue reconciliation as well. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them and as he is, has committed us as he is committed to us the message of reconciliation we are therefore christ's ambassadors as through though god were making his appeal through us we implore you on christ's behalf be reconciled to god that's from 2 corinthians chapter 5 verse 18 to 20 we are not the reconciler jesus is However, we are his ambassadors, representing his kingdom and all that entails to a broken world, which leads to the following definition of poverty alleviation. Poverty alleviation is the ministry of reconciliation, moving people closer to glorifying God by living in right relationships with God, self, with others, and with the rest of creation, which is pretty much that image that Mitch put up, um, but in words. Um, then... Reconciliation of relationships is the guiding compass for our poverty alleviation efforts, profoundly shaping both the goals that we pursue and the methods we use. The goal is not to make the materially poor all over the world into middle class, middle to upper class North Americans or Australians, a group categorised by high rates of divorce, sexual addiction, substance abuse and mental illness. Nor is it the goal to make sure that the material poor have enough money. Indeed, America's welfare system ensure, uh, sorry, rather the goal is to ensure, uh, the, rather the goal is to restore people to a full expression of humanness, to being what God created us all to be, 
people who glorify God by living in right relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of us, rest of creation. One of the manifestations of these relationships being reconciled to poverty uh, alleviation, material poverty alleviation, is working to reconcile the four foundational relationships so people can fulfill their callings of glorifying God by working and supporting themselves and their families with the fruit of that work. So, Mitch, what were your thoughts on this first part of Chapter 3? That it is just, it's relationships all the way down, isn't it? It's just relationships on relationships on relationships, and that's, that's the fundamental. That's, at the end of the day, that's all we're called to do. And the fruit of fostering those relationships, I think it's inevitable that there will be, you know, that money will move from where it's not needed to where it is needed, and housing will be made available to people because... You know, what, what do you do with people who you are in strong, rich, vibrant relationship with? You, you care for each other and you take care of each other's needs and you, you give and receive in mutual dependency um, because we're human beings and we're made to, to care for each other and love each other. And, you know, sometimes we're even pretty good at it. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of my um, thoughts is just the definition of ministry, uh, sorry, poverty alleviation. Mm. So if it's the ministry of reconciliation, moving people closer to glorifying God by living in right relationship with God, with self, with others, and with Mm. the rest of creation, what do our ministries in church look like Mm. if we took this approach to what mission is and what, like Mm. if we thought about ministries in church as mission, yeah. And not, I guess, siloing or yeah. separating it out because yeah. I think ministry in churches, well, in some yeah. cases, are missional. But the if ch- it's about reconciliation and wholeness mission. of people, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's to glorify God and bring reckon or be the agents of reconciliation. Be the agents of reconciliation. Yeah, that's the ambassadors, ambassadors. of reconciliation. Yeah. So what, I guess that's a question I'm left with as someone mm. who works in ministry in a church as well, is well, what do our ministries look like mm. if we are to be people of ambassadors of reconciliation? Mm. What does then a church ministry look like? And yeah. not just our missions ministries, mm. but our playgroups, our Sunday schools, our mm. youth groups, our Bible studies, our life groups, our Sunday services, our like all the aspects and things mm. that make up a church as a organization and I guess mm. institution what does that look like yeah what would it look like if the if the evaluating question we asked ourselves is what relationships does this activity form yeah what what is the what is the quality and character of relationship that we are forming by doing this thing that we're doing yeah um, yeah yeah, how does that change how we how we do church? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's because and because it is that that fourfold relationship. You know what what are we fostering in our relationship with God? What are we fostering with our relationship with people? What are we fostering in our relationship with self and with creation? Um, 
you know, these are these are brilliant mm. questions. Um, and if if you just went yeah. through every every moment of of every day of of church life and just constantly asking those questions, what is in this moment? What are we fostering in our relationships? Those those fourfold relationships. I think that would be a really powerful mm. uh, exercise. Because when you're fostering a relationship with God, you're mm. then strengthening your relationship with yourself because your identity comes from God rather yeah. than the world or whatever, wherever yeah. you find your worth, it becomes yeah. God being yeah. where you find your worth. And then from there, I tend to find my relationships get better with people as well because mm. my identity isn't formed or it is less formed, we'll say less, on what people will think of me, how I perform, all those mm. sort of things because my identity is through God. And then same yeah. with I think it then gives me in terms of relationship with creation, it gives me this like um, maybe courage to stand up and say, hey, this is actually something God cares about as well, mm. so I'm going to care about creation too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Rather than it being about, you know. that Those fourfold relationships are uh, mutually reinforcing of one another, yeah. strengthening strengthening one will lead to a strengthening of the other. Absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. So the next section in this chapter we were, we're going to dive into is the section called People and Process, Not Projects and Products. Um, and I'm going to read a couple of or a page and a half from here. So the goal is to see people restored to being what God created them to be. People who understand that they are created in the image of God with the gifts, abilities, and capacity to make decisions and to effect change in the world around them. And people who steward their lives, communities, resources, and relationships in order to bring glory to God. These things tend to happen in highly relational, process-focused ministries more than in impersonal, product-focused ministries. This point can be illuminated with the story of Sandtown a 72-block area in Baltimore, Maryland, that embodies the typical characteristics of North American inner-city ghetto. High rates of drug abuse, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, violence, dilapidated houses, and unemployment. But in the midst of Sandtown's carnage is New Song Urban Ministries and Community Church, which has created a 15-block beacon of hope in the darkness. Now, it, now in its 20th year, New Song employs more than 80 staff members and manages a multi-million dollar annual budget to run its program for housing, job placement, healthcare, education, and arts. More than 200 homes have been re rehabilitated and there is hope in the eyes of the residents for the first time in decades. Deservedly, New Song has received national attention as one of the premier models of church-based community development in North America. I visited New Song for the first time in 1996, hoping to understand their formula for success. Impressed with all the houses they had rehabilitated and the numerous ministries they had started, my questions focused around how to start and operate all their programs. How do you manage your ministry? What are the costs of each program? How do you raise the money? Who's on your board? Where can I read the operations manual? How do you find housing contractors? The co-founders of New Song, Mark Gornick and Alex, and Alan and Susan Tibbles patiently answered my questions, but they kept trying to redirect my thoughts away from money and programs towards something else, which is captured in the following passage from Mark Gornick's powerful book. We, Mark, Alan, and Susan, 
decided to relocate to an inner city high uh, inner city neighborhood, not to change or save it, but to be the neighbors and to learn the agenda of community and to live in terms set by our neighbors. We tightly we held tightly to a commu- commitment of God's shalom for Sandtown, but we had no plans or programs. Instead of imposing our own agendas, we sought to place our lives in service of the community. For over two years, we weren't working to renovate houses. We were out and around the community, hanging out. During this time, the foundational relationships of the church were formed. Everything revolved around building community together. So during the summer, for example, at least once a month, all of us would pile into a couple of vans and go to a park for a picnic. We would go downtown and sometimes take trips to other cities. Community came through having fun together, sharing our lives and learning to be followers of Christ together. So, Mitch, before we just, um, I guess, dive into the discussion here, I haven't prepped you for this question, but I just thought of it as I was reading this section. Mm-hmm. If you would like to share, what has been a transformational journey of discipleship in your life, like an example of that? Mm. And when and how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. My answer for that is often uh, um, my experiences on McRae SUFM Beach Mission. Um, so I joined that team. I think I've, I've talked about this a little bit on um, Mission Unplugged when I interviewed uh, Emma Cox. Um, I joined that team 10 odd years ago um, and a couple of normal ones. Um, and as a, as a, you know, late high school, I think I would have been and continued on you know, into my, through, through university, through working. Um, yeah. And finished up only a couple of years ago and that, um, you know, a, a beach mission can be a very, very program driven place. We've got timetables and we've got, um, you know, uh, activities that we run and, um, you know, morning program, evening program, family events, all of that good stuff. But the thing that was transformational was the community that existed around that. And that came not from um, not from the programs themselves, but from the, the process of being together and doing the dishes together and brushing our teeth together and doing, you know, um, devotion and time alone with God and... Um, playing games and planning and working alongside one another in a very intense, you know, two week period each year. Um, And then coming back and doing it all again the following year. Um, And I think I can, I can barely remember any of the program stuff that we ran but I remember a lot of the team time and I remember a lot of the, the camping and the cooking and the cleaning, uh, the setting up tents. I remember the setting up tents. Um, <laughs> I'll hope, hopefully a ther- therapist will help me forget the setting up tents. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that, those were probably the, the more influential parts of that more than the, you know, the formalized training more than the, events that we ran ourselves. Um, yeah. Being alongside people working with a common purpose and living together. 
It's very, very transformational. What about for you? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think of different situations where there's probably um, where where the same things happen but in different ways. So I Mm. think um, one of probably a more recent example is when I've, like the person who sort of mentors me, um, I'll go around to her house and we'll just I'll just be sitting at the kitchen breakfast bar or the the breakfast mm. bar and we'll just be chatting while I don't know she's cooking dinner or like I'll get involved and we'll like cook dinner together kind of thing. Yeah. Um or I'll help out with that kind of stuff. And once again, that to me, because to me that's home, that's what you do. Mm. Um you get involved and help mm. out and you yeah. do it together. Yeah. Um and that to me is really um yeah really powerful and it was really cool because um the other week the person that i'm mentoring i was cooking dinner that night that we were catching up and she helped me (laughs) with the stuff and i was like oh my goodness this is what i would do with my mentor and i was like oh that's really cool so that was really nice to sort of see that like i really just had a little moment of oh that's really cool that's really special because i was like this is a thing that's special for me in that space then probably isn't for her but (laughs) <laughs> like for me, I was like, oh, I'm doing Not the yet. same things. It's been modeled for me kind of thing. So that was kind of cool. Mm. Um, but then I think one of the times where we had a youth camp, it's always a youth camp, um, <laughs> and it was a very, very wet weekend and we were staying in these cabins and, like, we literally the entire weekend, if we weren't doing slip and slide down the wet hill, um, we were just sitting under the veranda on the big tables playing cards, playing just board games and stuff because that's literally all we could do all weekend mm. because yeah. it was just so was wet. Miserable. No one, we couldn't do of any of the, uh, I don't know what else was planned, but that's just what it was <laughs> all weekend, playing games and stuff and um, a few sessions and stuff too, but just all the hangout time, it was either in your cabins or like under the veranda. Mm. And once again, just spending time together was really fun and like learned to play different card games that I hadn't played before and just some very funny memories um mm. from those times and yeah just once again it's the doing life together stuff that is most um powerful in that mm. journey I've found yeah yeah which I think is a really I think all that is a really beautiful articulation of kind of what um, part of what Stephen Bryan are getting at in this, um, particularly throughout chapter three, like this this process of of becoming, this process of learning to be more like Jesus, of developing character. Um, yeah, that's something I, I, a few friends of mine who are like involved in um, coaching again. Another plug for mission unplugged um my discussion with ben chong around coaching one of the things that we we i'm pretty sure we talked about or we've talked about it in other places you know is you know this it's a um coaching and leadership development and stuff um there's a whole bunch of skill stuff that you can do you know you can learn to i don't know you can learn to preach you can learn to run an event you can learn to format a PowerPoint or make a poster or whatever it is you need to do for your job. But the stuff that will lead to lasting change is the formation and development of character. Um, Mm. And, and also where you see 
the really um, disastrous leadership stories is usually because there hasn't been that development of, of character. Um, mm. And yeah. And, and those, those relationships, those, those processes, that time of, of just being able to be in relationship and go through that, that process of just being with each other and becoming something else is really good for, breaking down that those those god complexes in the the materially mm. non-poor to to borrow from the book and to break down the any any harm and damage that's been done to the spirit of people who have lived through poverty um and, and even yeah. people who have not lived through poverty um as well yes exactly every everybody benefits through the the formation of better character people over um, programs yeah 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 and i think in in my experience that kind of approach is also um it's just it can be a bit more chill like what the the uh, leaders of the sandtown um crew were describing like sounds great going to I mean, cities and picnics great. and stuff and but like also i feel like when you're trying to start something or do something, it's like, how am I measuring this? What am I doing? Yeah. And how do I know there's going to be success? Like, what are the things yeah. you're putting in that you want this thing to be? And then again, that's probably just like super. And I, that's and like I think super so often you just don't. Western, yeah. You just don't Western know. mindset. Yeah. And it's just like, you don't know, but I want to know. That's probably a me thing too. Yeah. Control <laughs> kind of thing. And I'm like, if I'm not doing the right thing, it's not going to work. So yeah. while I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. I think that does sound amazing. But also I'd be like, probably get so frustrated after like mm. six months. Cause I'd be like, but I haven't seen any fruit. What's happening. Mm. How do I know this is working? <laughs> And that and that sucks because like <laughs> the the conversations that I've had with people who have successfully navigated long term ministry and uh, the 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 reflection is often it takes ten years to start seeing fruit. Yep. You spend oh. ten years doing the 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 barbecues and the picnics and the the process of building relationships developing and relationship. yeah. developing character and all of this stuff. Um, and then you'll start to see the fruit. You can't jump straight to the fruit. And when we try and do that with our really, with our really programmatic, with our really, you know, um, really planned and, you know, our, our five-step plan to, to guaranteed success, um, these, yeah. these are so often recipes for, for burnout and you don't, you can't last the decade or more that it takes um, yeah. To really start to build, to to see the fruit of the relationships that you're building. Um, yeah. Which you know, it's not a particularly helpful reflection to uh, for anybody who's no. into KPIs and. Uh... <laughs> uh, yeah. It is not, but yeah. also, but I guess God, there's God reality of in that. the mustard seed. Yeah. God absolutely. of yeast. Yeah. You know. Small things yeah. that don't get seen, and then all of a sudden they grow into mighty shrubs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mustard well, trees aren't even shrubs. Yeah, I know. Trees they're not even big, like big trees. Aren't big beautiful trees. They're shrubs. No, <laughs> but they're. But isn't that a lovely image too? That it doesn't yeah. have to be a big beautiful tree, but just no. a shrub. Yeah. 
hardy and useful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Look, I and I think as as we kind of said before, you know, one of the the central things in this chapter that we're exploring is the the tension between individual character formation and structural and systemic change as and both are necessary for the alleviation of poverty both for people who have been affected and experienced poverty um, are going to have to do some character development as are every single other human being in the world but particularly the materially non-poor perhaps even more so um forming some healthier character some healthier pro um approaches processes and uh so the next little section we're going to talk about um is a little bit more about the systemic um nature of change that is required for poverty alleviation um and some of the challenges uh that can have and in specific um the specific example we're going to talk about is um american inner city um african american or I'll just read the section. Despite the crowded conditions in the early 1950s, African-American sections of the America's inner city were largely viable, stable communities. However, the subsequent three decades were quite destabilizing. Federal urban renewal and highway programs required land in inner cities and African-American neighborhoods were often raised. Lower-income African-Americans were then relocated into publicly funded housing projects, while middle to upper class African-Americans were forced to relocate elsewhere. Using a set of policies that both explicitly and implicitly discriminated against African-Americans, the Federal Housing Administration then began to offer subsidised mortgages and enabled millions of Caucasians to purchase homes in the suburbs and flee the cities. Ironically, advances in the civil rights movements later reduced suburban housing discrimination, allowing middle-income, middle- and upper-class African-Americans to relocate to the suburbs as well. As a result of this suburban flight, the remaining inner-city African-American communities lost leaders, role models, working families, and solid economic base. And then the jobs left. America transitioned from a predominantly manufacturing economy, a predominantly manufacturing economy to a service economy. From the 1970s to 1985, millions of high-paying blue-collar jobs simply disappeared from inner cities, moving to other parts of the country or overseas. Unemployment in the inner cities skyrocketed, and many African American inner-city residents joined the welfare rolls, a system that penalized them for working by taking away benefits for every dollar they earned. Isn't it interesting the... just the oppression of a group of people without the intention of doing that, but the system well, rolling something out. Well, debatably, but... Well, de- yeah. Yes, maybe There's, there was. We're, we're, talking, in- we're talking civil rights America. There was some pretty uh, deliberate true. discriminatory policies That's there. But yes. That's true. I'm, I'm being too generous. Um, but but the, I think it's the gentrification of neighbourhoods as well, mm. gentrification being the, um, the process of when you might have what's considered a minority group or a, a, a social enclave 
yeah. of people living in a place that then becomes cool or hip mm. and all the white people decide to move in, raise the price of living, therefore pricing the people who live there and is maybe where cultural heritage is in these places um, get priced out and have to move elsewhere. Mm. Um, so if you live in and around cities, I'm sure you can think of the different places that are like that. So, I mean, in Sydney you've got like Cabramatta, which has got, um, which is a, great example of a social enclave of a lot of Asian cultures because that's where a lot of people moved um, when they migrated to Australia um, yeah. and, you know, different, yeah, different communities around and about. I'm sure the same's in Melbourne. Like you can name the places where the different yeah. um, areas are where different cultures of people have lived because that's where culture is and that's what's Box familiar. Hill is famously. Um, yep. Lots of lots of Asian cultures there is brilliant. Such a good little yep. suburb. Like, oh, Cabramatta. I oh, so much good food in Cabramatta. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> delicious. Great pork rolls. Yeah, and even the the suburb where I grew up, um, Ringwood in uh, Melbourne's outer east, is I, I would describe that as a gentrifying um, suburb. Less less of the. Um, uh, less of a like a culturally um, uh, culturally monogamous. Uh, what am I trying to say? Less less of a consistent cultural heritage, but more just like a pricing thing. Um, the, uh, quite a large refugee community in Ringwood um, as I was growing up, um, but you know, in the last ten fifteen years or so, the plan has been to kind of, you know, raise the profile of the suburb into like a mini CBD and, you know, the the once reasonably trashy uh, shopping centre got a very fancy Beautiful. makeover um, and all of a sudden there's security guards with, you know, two-piece suits and ties um, and their mm. little earpieces wandering around and you're like, okay. All of a sudden, you know, there there is a change in the character of the neighbourhood, um, and they're doing putting every effort into attracting a you know wealthier demographic, um, and that is affecting housing price. I mean, housing prices are already shot, but uh, it is it That's is a gentrifying. Whole conversation. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the same thing. So you know, where do, where do you go when you're a migrant family that can't afford the uh, ridiculous rent? You go further out and you go further away from services and you go further away from education and um, yeah, it just begins to compound the problems. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to get more regional to get something affordable, but then yeah. the regions and rural don't always have, as you're saying, appropriate serve or nope. not appropriate, it's not the right word, but don't have enough services and all of that. And then work becomes a challenge. And yeah. even in terms of so, what he's talking about here with um, the um, the job industry changing from a manufacturing to service economy, mm. we've seen that here happen in Australia. Yeah. Um, Sydney is a perfect example of that as well. You have a lot of blue-collar areas yeah. that became not because all the manufacturing industries yeah. offshore because can't get a hold and made in australia anymore no you know? exactly yeah. right yeah all of those sort of things um yeah. and 
that then disadvantages people who maybe haven't had the opportunity to get a university degree and mm. do something in the services industry because that's not even and it's not even just people who might be migrants or refugees or different nah. things yeah. like that it's people who have grown up and grown up in families where yep. you know you are the boilermakers you've got a yep. family history of doing work like that yeah. that then becomes challenging yeah for future generations yeah and so this is this is stuff where we start to see the systemic uh impacts uh the, or the, the impacts that systems have and fractured relationships that form fractured systems have on mm. people's experience of material poverty um you know, you mentioned public transport, or you, you mentioned services before moving out into the the suburbs. I I live currently in a um, one of the outer edges of Melbourne, um, down on the Mornington Peninsula, in a suburb that is historically um, socioeconomically depressed, or probably more more accurately, wildly varying between um, socioeconomically depressed and um, very upper. Uh, upper earning people with their holiday houses because it's a beachside town. But one of the things that we don't have, we don't yeah. have public transport. There's like a couple of bus lines. There's, there's maybe one mm. bus line that kind of goes up and down the main road. But as soon as you're like a block back from the main road, you you can't get public transport. And there's a, a young woman um, who started her first job at a um, fast food place who um, this, this young woman attends our youth group. And she had to she had to quit that job recently because she just mm. she couldn't get there. Like it, you know, mm. there there wasn't the the public transport um, that she was needed. No one could drive her. She couldn't drive herself. She's not old enough yet. Um, mm. You know, and so that that lack of a systemic service means that this this young person uh, is is less able to find employment um mm. you know I, i'm sure she'll you know she's probably found another job by now she's a very bright girl like she'll have no issues but you know these things matter um absolutely and yeah and can have really really shockingly compounding effects because mm. um, it's even like as simple as not having access to a computer computer at home yeah especially through pandemic or yeah. limited internet or yeah. no thing or no device except for your phone. Well, yeah. I can't do school. Yeah. I can't or I don't have the resources to be able to do my schooling well. Yeah. So oh, I just won't do it. Yeah. And that compounds into other things, sense of worth, identity, you know, yeah. get getting labeled as oh XYZ who yeah. doesn't do this, like yeah. all of that, which is just something, something simple can really change how, and that's like the systemic stuff around that as well, right? Like mm. that could change a person's life or trajectory yeah. by just having yeah. access to a simple thing that we take for granted yeah. um, every day. Yeah. And the thing about systems is they, they tend to be outside the control of any one human being. I don't think there's a single human being in 
Melbourne who could just decide to install a train line uh, down towards my suburb. I'm thinking about it. I don't think there is. Um, if that person exists and if they listen to this podcast, I would love a train line, please. I would love to not have to drive to the city. Um, but, you know, these, these things do have, like these things that are outside of any individual's control have these far-reaching consequences that can sometimes be really hard to discern um, when, you're, when you're dealing with individual people. Um, there's a there's a great example at the end of this chapter um, around um, I think it was the oil price in America having yeah like um, driving uh, I want to say Bolivian farmers further into poverty um, and you know what what recourse does a farmer in Bolivia have to the you know the cost of oil in the United States. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that tension is still is is always going to be something that I sit with. Like I'm I'm a I'm a very, and I think you are too, Emily. I think we've had these conversations. A very systems oriented person. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why we work so well together because we like yes. the structure and the systems and the boxes. Yeah. yeah. And and very very quick to identify systemic issues um and yes. to to work towards fixing them which i think is a is a gift um I, I think it's one of the things we can often bump up against in trying to um affect the world affect change is that that the world is so blooming complicated you have you have to have an awareness and a sensitivity towards um, systems that have been built over, you know, potentially hundreds of years. If you, you kind of want to get everywhere. Like um, it was the end of, end of chapter two, I think that we were talking about like, you know, the economic policy of China um, has an effect that ripples out. Mm. And, you know, like I said, none, none of us individually are, going to be able to change any of that stuff but then it does become it really important for us to explore how do we work together to change these things no one person can change these things but together we can start to to unpick some of the unhealthy stuff and start to shore up some of the the stuff that's having good outcomes and yeah but at the Which same time, there's got to be a huge. willingness to identify and deconstruct the unhealthy things and pick them yes. out. Yes. Which is sometimes the biggest challenge. Yes, absolutely. Is that first step of going, of stepping into a place of humility, of going, oh, well, it's actually not all good. My worldview doesn't sit comfortably or align anymore why is that and willing to step into that which is so uncomfortable yeah but i think necessary to to affect change from the inside out yeah yeah and as we said again and again and we'll continue to say again and again and again the best way forward is relationship all of these Absolutely. all of these systems, all of these institutions, all these things that exist are products of relationships over time. Um, yeah. 
So, yeah. That brings us to the end of our conversation tonight, Mitch, I think, in terms of I this. I mean, so. we could go on and on and on. There's we could. still half we've, a chapter that we haven't really delved into. We've but skipped over we've sort so of come much to our this chapter, time. but that's what we get when we try and tackle two in a night. Yeah, two decent chunks of chapter. Too but big. in saying that, half a lot of the chunks. conversations we've had, we sort of have done significant deep dives into yeah. in Make Poverty Personal. So... There's probably That's a more right. nuanced reflection. That was absolutely something there. that we kept reflecting on, um, particularly in the lead up to today, is that the particularly the opening chapters of this book um complement uh make poverty personal so so nicely. Um so yeah. if you haven't read that, if you didn't read that with us when we were doing our last series, do encourage you to go get yourself a copy of Make oh, Poverty yeah. Personal. Read it alongside. It's, yeah, really good. See what happens. Yeah. Alternate one yeah. chapter at a time. Swap between yeah. Make Poverty Personal and When Helping Hurts. See what happens. Oh, gosh. That's, <laughs> yes. See what existential crisis you spin into. Um, <laughs> so what are you going to take away from what we've been discussing tonight, Mitch? Mm, I the, the big challenge for me from this these chapters what has been around the, the tension between in personal responsibility and systemic responsibility. I, like I said, I'm, I'm a systems person. I'm very quick to go, you know, try and drill into the systemic causes of injustice and the systemic causes of poverty. And I think something that I need to learn is um, that, you know, the, the personal responsibility of particularly for myself, um, I can't be personally responsible for anybody else. So, you know, taking that on board and continue to wrestle with um, what character change needs to happen um, and how that kind of needs to, all needs to unfold. What about Mm. for you? I think it's just the willingness to continue reflect and reconsider. Well, not even reconsider. Just the continuous process of reflection of, well, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm. Um, Because I think if I stop doing that, then that's when it's all going to go kaput because, Mm. you know, if it's not for the whatever the thing is for the right reasons, then and and just that, yeah, process of decolonising and deconstruction to hopefully be to hopefully create a more nuanced understanding and appreciation of the word and of and how that plays into our world and society. Mm. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then it's probably not worth continuing doing what I'm doing mm. um, because I don't think, I think that's also when you cause the most harm is when you're not, doing it for the right reasons anymore mm. when you're not coming back to the core purpose of relationship and people mm. and yeah when it becomes about success or keep just purely about success and kpis and not people mm. then it's not really well what god has called us into mm. and it yeah yeah when it stops being about reconciliation mm. i think actually that was the other thing i was going to say as well it's this process and this thing of not just talking about stuff, but actually doing things, actually practically being hands and feet and not just Mm. talking about the ideas and doing that, which is good and important, Mm. but okay, put your money where your mouth is. 
yeah. be that, actually live that too. Um, yeah. Don't just talk about it in your ivory tower in your comfortable space, but get get your hands dirty too. And mm. um, I think while reading this book, there's a real potential risk of baby out with a bathwater or it's all too hard, I can't do it. Hmm. But then coming back into it and going, okay, well, no, it's actually not all bad and it's okay to like deconstruct some of that stuff and decolonize and whatever. Hmm. But also going, okay, well, all right, so this is where I am now. What am I going to do with what I've got in that reflective, in that um, with all those processes in place Hmm. to ideally do the least amount of harm in the process to yourself and others. Mm. Yeah. Isn't that the goal? Mm. <laughs> Once again, easier said than done. Easier said than done. It always is. That's right. <sighs> we are in the process of becoming. Yeah. So Mitch, do you have a benediction for us tonight? I do. Let's, let's leave it. Leave. Yeah. Let's leave with the uh, benediction Ascribed to St. Patrick that I used last, uh, last fortnight. Nice, simple. Um, Christ with you. Christ before you. Christ behind you. Christ in you. Christ beneath you. Christ above you. Christ on your right. Christ on your left. Christ when you lie down. Christ when you sit down. Christ when you arise. Christ in the heart of every person who thinks of you. Christ in the mouth, sorry, Christ in the mouth of every person who speaks of you. Christ in the eye that sees you. Christ in the ear that hears you. Amen. Amen. Next time, next fortnight, we're going to be reading part two of When Helping Hurts, and we're going to be diving into chapter four. Not all poverty is created equal, and am I keen to get into this? Because this is a great chapter where we start examining some more practical um, ways of doing mission and what it is and how we've how the church has sort of done it and some critiques and strengths and weaknesses of the approaches. So I'm super keen to get into the next chapter because there is some gold in here as someone who's already started reading it. (laughs) Great. Can't wait to get into it for the first time. And on that note, we're going to say we're going to sign off. So good night and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to Reading Mission, a podcast by Embody. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review so more people can find us. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Every episode of Reading Mission is recorded live in our Discord server. So if you ever want to join in the live discussion and connect with other people exploring mission, justice and social change together, head to embody.org.au forward slash discord to join in. Embody is a national community of young people passionate about mission locally, nationally and globally. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at EmbodyAU and visit our website at embody.org.au. All the links are in the show notes. Embody is part of the Global Mission Partners family. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia and pay respects to Elders past and present. We recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. Music in the show is by Josh Woodward and we'll catch you next time and thanks heaps for listening to Reading Mission.